five and six last week, talking a little bit about uh, family faithfulness and, uh, and moving forward and future. So today what we're going to do is I'm going to do a, a three-part series. Uh, it's going to be from the book of Titus. We're going to be going out of here, and it's uh, from Titans to Titus is the name of the series. So this is going to be week one. Uh, Titus is broken down in three different chapters. If you look through each chapter, uh, they have their own specific themes. So when you look at it, it's, uh, the first one is, addresses elders and leaders. So, so today we're going to talk about, um, about leadership and about the, the process of that. And then next week, uh, it's going to be believers. So we're going to talk about the believers' uh, mandate and what Paul writes to Titus about, about what we as believers should be doing. And then uh, the third week, or uh, the third part of this series will be society, how believers, leaders should be acting with one another in society and how that's going to roll forward. So we're going to break down those three chapters. We're not going to go... Um, uh, super hardcore through verse by verse, but we're going to go each chapter for each of those times. So we're going to work through that. Amen. Let's pray as we get ready to get started. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together and to hear your word, to read your word, to be excited with one another as we are challenged by what uh, these great apostles, great men have written and from the lives of these great men and women throughout scripture. Thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to do this freely and openly, that we live in a country where we can do this without worrying about being bombarded with all, ty uh, all types of persecution. Thank you, Lord, that we could be challenged and we can actually go out and we can spread this message with the way that we live our lives and the way that we react and act to other people. We love you, we praise you, and thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, and everybody said, amen, amen, and amen. Well, the, the topic, uh, kind of the antithesis of all of Titus is found, if you look at the entire overview of this, of this topic, is found in Titus chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through 14. So we're going to be there first, and it says this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Everybody say all people. All people. Mm -hmm. It teaches us to say no. Say no. no. Teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good Woo, that's good isn't it we, we need to be eager to do what is good. So just a little bit of background for this book. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Titus, I know that's not something that typically people will turn to uh, in the Bible. That's usually not the first book that you look at. Usually you're in the Gospels, or maybe you want to know about creation, so you go to the very front of the Bible. So this is found towards the back end of the Bible in a place called the New Testament. It's at the back end of the New Testament. And this is part of the, uh, of the Pauline, the pastoral epistles is what they call them. It was written by Paul. And so these are these letters for Titus and also for first and second Timothy. These were written to certain young men that Paul decided to encourage and to edify and to give them direction as they begin to lead their people in their specific places. Now, Paul or sorry, excuse me, Titus was in a place uh, called Crete. And this place, just to give you a little bit of understanding of where Titus is being dropped into, is that their belief system, they were very much into the Greek mythology. Okay, so Zeus was a really big deal in their area. So they believed that their race actually emerged from the earth, which made them the original Greeks. So they believed that they were the original and the, and the, the all-powerful original Greeks. So this is the background that they have. So kind of an elitism that they carried with themselves. And in contrast to Olympus, Olympus is claimed to be at the seat of the gods. Crete actually countered that the gods, so the titans, anybody ever do any Greek mythology in school or anything like that, learned about that? So they believed that the very gods were men and women of Crete, elevated to deity by the virtue of their, of their lifestyle and bestowed upon them by the human race. So they believed that they were not just the original Greeks, but they believed that there were a, a group of them that have been elevated to the point of deism, to where they have been made gods. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the, the background of what we're, what we're dealing with in this, in this place. And then they also believe that their island was the birthplace of the majority of the gods. In the case of Zeus, they called the preeminent man become God. So Crete was also believed to be this burial place, and this is where they worshipped the gods. Thus began on Crete. So they began that all worship of these gods began on Crete. This is your background. This is where, this is where Titus... Uh, we, you can call him Tiny Titus if you want. Tiny Titus was dropped right here in the middle of all of these, these ideologies, this elitist society to where they thought that they were the cream of the crop. They thought they were the best of the best, and not only that they were a superior 
part of humanity, but they also could become gods themselves as they would live their lives. This is not too far-fetched from what we actually see today. There's a lot of people who have this elitism to where they believe that they are, they are higher in society because of the things that they were able to do, maybe their accomplishments, could be because of their strength, could be because of their money, their status, many things that elevate them to this place of superiority, and then it also supersedes, it goes above and beyond the law. So they think that they are above the law, and they could actually create the law because of their lifestyle. <coughs> um, Interesting enough, too, is that Crete was an island in the Mediterranean south of the Aegean Sea. So if you don't know anything about uh, geography, just let that go. That's okay. Um, but this was uh, an important commercial way station. So this is important. It was very, very integral in the position of trade, commerce, lots of business that would happen would go through Crete. So this was an area where you had a lot of different people groups coming in and going out to be able to make money, to trade with others, and to find new philosophies that they could live their lives by. And this was also a place for the most current of philosophies and religions that would pass through at one point or another. And then, because you had all these different, uh, all these different thought processes and religions, they would come through and they would leave their mark in some way to where people would grab bits and pieces, lots of times, of these people's religions and their thought processes. And then they would start to adapt that to their lifestyle. So Titus He's, he's not just going to this Jewish people group where they all believe that, that in God and they all are going through this process and they have to work through that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. He's not coming from this position. He's going into a completely new culture, a completely new people group that they, uh, that they do not know anything about Jesus Christ being the Son of God. Their ideas of sons of God are that they became gods and that they birthed their sons or daughters who then would be either demigods or they would elevate into another godlike status. Okay, so now we know the context of the scripture where we're reading from, right? So when we look back at what I just read from the kind of the layout for Titus, and let's go back to that again real quick, if you could, Mr. Terry. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to read this again. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Again, everybody say all people. This means every single person that thought themselves to be higher than everybody else, all these people in Crete who think that they are much better than everybody else, they have all these different ideas of what religion is and philosophies of life, Jesus still came to save those people too, amen? So then in verse 12, it says, it, if it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So we're going to jump into uh, in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And this is where he addresses, uh, addresses the elders, the elders who, who love what is, uh, what is good and, and they love God. And here's, here's the reason why, why Paul is writing to Titus. Titus is a young man starting to establish parts of the church. He didn't go there cold turkey, though. They had done some, there had been some work uh, being done in Crete already. But when he writes to him, he's letting him know that he is, uh, well, let's just read verse 5, and we'll get there. So verse 5 says this, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Great, great advice for Paul. So this means that they were already doing things in Crete. So he wasn't going in there without any kind of base or any kind of uh, work being done beforehand. He, they actually had some things happening during that time. And so what, did, what Paul did was he left Titus there so that he can continue the work because he's deemed it unfinished. So now he's charging Titus. Okay, Titus, now it's time for you to start building community as you guys are there. Remember last week we talked a lot about community, the importance of community and family and, and doing all of these things. And so... So Paul is, is, is petitioning for Titus to start to create something that can be bigger than just himself. Because remember, again, these, these people in Crete, they think they could be elevated to a specific spot. So Paul does not want Titus to have this, um, to have this appearance to these people who are used to seeing human gods, these deities, pop up. He doesn't want them to look at him as a god in this new religion. Amen? Everybody say amen to that. <laughs> Because Titus was not a god. Titus, Titus was just a servant of God. Amen? 
And we see that in, Paul, in Paul's writings all throughout Scripture. He tells them consistently, Paul, a servant, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And Paul was one of the main, main guys up top. He was one of the main guys pushing this, this message across all of the world. And so, uh, so he's doing the same thing for Titus, saying, hey, it's time to start building up some leaders so that they can be planted in these cities so that they can be used for the gospel and for the power of Jesus Christ. And so he's telling them, it's time now to start building up these, these elders. And, and in verse 6, he says this, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Verse 7 says, Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. And then verses 8 and 9 say this. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is really great. Uh, I'm going to go back to verse 6 for a second, Mr. Terry. He says this again. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not going are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So I have three points that I'm going to make, and this is going to carry through the rest of this message. But I'm going to give it to you at the top so you can be looking for it when, as we go through. Amen. So the first one is conviction. All right. First word is conviction. And conviction is this. I, I was talking to, for my master's thesis, I had to do some interviews with some people for the very back end of my, of my project. And I interviewed a man named Jay Thomas. Jay Thomas was a uh, he is, still is really prominent in the worship movement. He wrote lots of really great songs, uh, some that we sing uh, today even. Um, and so he, he was able to have some time, and he jumped on the phone with me, and I was able to talk to him for a little bit about just conviction from the place of worship, from the position of worship. And he said a couple things that, that were really great, and I really grabbed hold of, and I even put it in my, in my project. He said that, um, talking about someone who is being open and honest, and then uh, Paul uses the words blameless, Right? blameless. And this is out of the NIV, he says blameless. But if you look in other translations, it says above reproach. And so this above reproach word, if you look at it, a lot of times we could feel the temptation to look at this as almost a perfection, a perfectionistic way of life. And then you start to look at, okay, now you start to look at leaders. Now leaders have to be perfect now. Then you start to develop this idea, mentality, that okay, nobody can mess up. These guys have to be the top of the top. They, then we start to do a lot of what these, these people from Crete are doing. Start to elevate certain leaders, put them all the way up on this pedestal and say, my life has to be just like this person's. Then you start to say, well, this person has a specific gifting. So now my gifting has to match their gifting. And then I need to do everything. I have to speak just like this person does. Or I have to sing just like that person does. And whenever you start to find someone that you look up to, we start to deify them instead of use them as a great example of getting closer to Christ because it is Christ is the one he's the one that we should be getting closer to and through relationship we should be challenged and convicted and uplifted to be able to to live life that then mirrors relationship with Christ but when we start to elevate and we start to pursue things and pursue people instead of pursuing Christ then we start to twist the mentality of how things work so so in this conviction what Jay Thomas says is he said that there were times whenever he was, he served a lot at IHOP, and he still does a lot of that. IHOP, not the pancake place, uh, but the, <laughs> the place, International House of Prayer in Kansas City. So he did a lot of worship leading there. He was on the leadership team out there for a long time, and he even oversaw a lot of their operations of their recording. And he said there were, there were times whenever he was a little bit younger man uh, that he was struggling with, uh, with, with addiction to pornography. And he would, be he, would, he would end up slipping up with that, then he would go 10 minutes later, go up and he would have to lead worship and he would have to go through this part of praying and doing all this stuff and he said that, that this is a topic that he's very passionate about because people are not comfortable with struggle people are not comfortable when other people struggle especially if they're serving in some capacity it's very difficult especially today where, where we have a lot of people who will jump up on a YouTube page and start trashing somebody's name because they, they ended up be, being a human and messing up and falling prey to what, what the enemy had said in front of them. Now, there's a difference, again, there's a difference between someone struggling through in sanctification and choosing to walk in sin. Difference. There's a difference there. 
Okay, someone who's, who is walking through sanctification will have that wrestling back and forth. And sometimes you can describe it as almost as a roller coaster in your life to where you feel like you're on a mountaintop for a while, you're doing great, and then all of a sudden something happens and sends you down to the depths. And then you start to feel this. One of my buddies, Dave McCormack, said that whenever he was younger, he was in a church that he got saved in 565 times a year. He just consistently would have to go to the altar and get saved again because he was losing his salvation every time he would do something wrong. And that's not the mentality, and he would tell you today that he's set free from that mindset, but, um, but that's not the mentality we need to live by, because if we're in a process of being sanctified, then conviction is going to be a part of our lives. That's going to be something that we're going to have to deal with consistently. And conviction should not be looked at negatively. We talked about that a little bit last week. Conviction shouldn't be something that's negative. This is something that's positive, and it's for your purpose of progression in life. It's positive. It's positive. It's good. We need to be excited about conviction. The Lord chastises those whom he loves. So if that's the truth, then we're going to be, there's going to be things happening right here that you're going to be uncomfortable with as you do things in life. And sometimes you're going to be, you're going to be falling forward and not so much standing erect and taking off, right? So this is something that we're going to progressively be going through. And, and so Jay Thomas says that as he, as he started to understand more and more the heart of the father, the more that he was okay with getting up and just laying it all out and then being open with people with what he was going through. I was watching recently a YouTube, uh, a YouTube video where this guy was giving his testimony. He was, uh, he was a bit of a heftier guy in school, and so he didn't get much attention from the, from the ladies. And uh, he ended up going on the road after he graduated high school with one of his, uh, his family members who, uh, who was a trucker. And in that process, you know, you sit, you sit in a truck for a long time with somebody or take a trip. You're going to be on there for a while, and you end up talking about all sorts of things. And so they finally got on the topic of, of, of how he how he did with the ladies, if he had any girlfriend, if he ever kissed anybody, anything like that. And uh, he was like, no, no, I, I, I'm still a virgin, all these things, and started going through the list of all this. And, and, uh, and in, his na- in his naive process of thought, his, uh, his family member said, well, hey, I think I know somebody that when we get over there, you can experiment and things like that. He was like, oh, I mean, I guess, whatever. Gets there, he ends up, ends up losing his virginity to a prostitute and then catches an addiction to prostitution, and then consistently goes back. Now, he was in church, going through, he was serving on, on the worship team, playing music after a couple years of this happening, and, and he was still falling prey to this lie. And he said that he knew, and he, he said he was a part of some powerful services, like the Holy Spirit was moving, he would feel conviction every time, but he would always fall back prey into these things as he was trying to deal with this internally. But here's the thing that changed was that he was sitting and talking with a really good friend of his, and they were sharing things they were struggling with, and as he was listening to his friend process the things that he was struggling with, he was silent for like an hour and a half and didn't say anything while he was listening to him. And his friend could tell that there was something wrong. So we asked him, he's like, bro, are, is everything okay? What's going on? And then he stops, and he said he, he took about, it seemed like an eternity, but it was probably only 30 seconds before he said something, and he opened up with what he was experiencing and encountering in his life, things that he was struggling with. He said he fought in those 30 seconds, tooth and nail inside, to open up to somebody about what he was dealing with because he thought that he could do this on his own and just stop it whenever he wanted to. Like, I can stop it. No more. Don't have to do it. Blah. But he would always go back and back and back and back. So he said he had a knot in his stomach the entire time he was thinking about it. Just could not. Just was fighting. And then finally he opened up at the end of that 30 seconds and said that he was dealing with this in his life. He said as soon as he opened his mouth and started speaking, it's as if a veil lifted from his eyes and a weight lifted from his shoulders as he was able to unburden himself from his struggle alone. And he was able to really connect with somebody. And that person was wise enough to say, I'm here for you with whatever you need, but I'm not equipped to, to be able to help you with this problem. I'm, he's like, I'm, this is out of my depth. So what we will do is I will go with you and we'll go together and we'll go talk to your pastor and, or our pastor and we'll go go have some counsel and we'll deal with those things. And he said that that was, he, he knew that he didn't want to get to that point because he felt shame for what he was doing. But in the midst of that, he knew that that was going to bring forth fruit. And that shame comes from the enemy and conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Sin will make you feel shame. Sin will make you feel hard regret. Sin will make you feel de- uh, depressed and anxious. And sin will make you feel all these things, but... When you submit these things to the Lord, then you'll start to find freedom. It may not be all in one lump sum, 
but it's the process that you start to walk through as you release yourself from the burden of doing these things on your own. Then you can start taking one step at a time. And when you start feeling weak, you have people who you can shoulder that burden with you because they can stand there and they can help keep you accountable. And so when we look at this, when we look at it from this perspective, we see that the testimony of this gentleman gives you the opportunity to really look into what would happen if you can open up in your own life to people who are surrounding you as well. Here's what I love about the end of this story, and, and I'll move on to the next point here in a second. He said this, he said that when he approached his pastor, that he was so terrified of being taken down from his position of, of, of serving in the church because he was just so terrified because he was doing so well. He just found his, his, what he felt like was his gifting that he can walk in and he felt like he could honor the Lord through those things. And he said that what the pastor did was he did not judge him in the midst of his struggle while he was going through that. And they were setting up times to progress through what he was encountering. And yes, there were, there were points and moments in time where, where there was um, uh, some opportunity that could, that could be held for a moment. But he said the beautiful thing was that he was able to stand in front of the people as, he, as time progressed and share his story with other people in his close circle. And then he started moving outwards. Kind of like what we were talking about last week with it first starts in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. It first starts internally in your own household, and then it moves to your friends. So internally, it's Jerusalem. It, with your friends, that's Judea. And then with those who could be in opposition, that's Samaria. And then to the ends of the earth, because after you deal with your family, and then you talk to your friends, and then you get met with those who are in opposition, it's real easy to hit the ends of the earth. Because you just hit a bunch of stuff that you would be real nervous about people knowing about stuff, right? So he said once he started opening up little by little, he started to find that other people were struggling, maybe not with the exact same thing that he was, but with similar things. And he was able to help be a soundboard for them to meet Christ and to experience freedom. Because there's a lot of things that we could find that would try to manipulate and pull us down and put us in a place where we cannot be effective for the gospel. You may be saved, and that's wonderful. You may know Christ, and you may know who he is, and that's great. But your effectiveness is at zero. You're actually not effective for the gospel. You're just impacted by the gospel. Impacted just enough to kind of squeak into heaven, and that's it. But again, like we said this morning, this is not about getting to heaven. This is about getting to know Christ. This is why I'm, 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 I've been so just wrapped up with Revelation chapter 4 and that, that, that view of all those crazy-looking creatures just circling the throne of heaven, singing holy, holy, holy. And as, as those 24 elders grab their crowns and they throw them to the ground and they prostrate themselves in front of the Lord and they lay there and just sing out with the angels holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty let me tell you what there's a lot of people that I've seen that have given all these different visions of heaven and different things where they've seen that and that's wonderful and great but if the whole intent purpose of you wanting to know Christ and so you can go to some place that looks great let me tell you you're going to be wildly disappointed because it's not the view that gets you excited it's not the view that should be the reason why you want to go to heaven it shouldn't be just to escape flames or the torments of hell or any of that stuff. I can tell you there are plenty of people who are living in hell right now, and they're not dead. But really, the intention for what we should be doing is to get to know the one that all of heaven is rejoicing and singing for. That's why heaven is so great. There's some beautiful places on planet Earth right now that you can travel to, and you can be excited, and you can love the view, and it could be so wonderful and great. And you could feel like you're in a, in a heaven, heavenly-type state. It could be euphoric. It could be, be amazing. People write songs about these places. They, they go and draw pictures and take pictures, and there's some amazing things. I mean, you have people who travel for a living to really exotic places and post it online, and they make their money for looking at these places. But let me tell you, their lives are still just as empty as someone who's never left their hometown if they don't know Christ. We need to be about communicating with Christ. We need to be people who are passionate for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, which is Christ. And in that place, then we can walk forward, and then we can find that it doesn't matter where I'm at. I can be in Crete. I can be, if Psalm says that I can be in the heavens or I can be in Sheol, and it doesn't matter. I can be in hell. I can be in Hades. And as long as I walk with Christ, I'm going to be good. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. So the beautiful thing that we see with that man is that he, was, he felt comfortable in the midst of his community to share his story, and then other people were able to encounter and experience freedom. This is the testimony of Jesus in your life that prophesies to those who are al also dealing with things that you had been dealing with. 
or that you could be currently encountering. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's a wonderful thing that we get to do to communicate the gospel to where other people can really encounter and catch the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their life. Because it's not, it is not me that saves somebody. It's the Holy Spirit who draws somebody. And then it's our duty to know the word so that whenever we're speaking with these people who are catching conviction, they could be so impacted that they want to know Christ too. That's what it's about right there. Because it is only Jesus who is the one who can make you cleansed from your sins. It is not me. I can be full of all kinds of degrees and fancy words and that will do nothing to somebody who doesn't know Christ. So that's the first word. The second word is covenant. He says in verse 6, elders, uh, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife. And so this is the covenant portion that I want to go over. He said faithful to his wife. Now, you can also apply this to someone who's in leadership um, who is female to be faithful to her husband. This is where you choose the covenant over any desire. This is why this part is important. We have to choose our covenant over any other desire that we have. The covenant of marriage is very, is very, very important. It's important for us, those of you guys who are married, those of you guys who are looking to get married. But if you're not married, and, and if, even if you're, you're looking to stay in singleness, this is where this part is, is really helpful because it's not just marriage to a spouse. This is talking about the way that Christ is with the church. And this is where this whole picture is used as an, as an example. Because remember last week we read, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then wives should submit to their husbands. But it is only in the midst of Christ that this could be a perfect harmony. And he uses the example of marriage that everyone in, in these societies were used to because this is very valuable to see how Christ deals with us as a church. This is why this is so impactful. This is something you can see that goes all the way back into the Old Testament. Whenever, whenever Israel, we've t I've talked about this story a lot, and I love it, going through, looking at the Israelites sitting at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain, catches the Ten Commandments, comes all the way down the mountain, and he tells all the people, this is what God has required of us if we're going to stay with him. Obey these Ten Commandments. These are all the laws, the decrees, all these great things. Wonderful. Great. Do you agree? All of the nation of Israel goes, woohoo, we agree. He goes, okay, sweet. I'm going to go back up, and I'm going to come back down a little bit, and then we'll start progressing forward. Awesome. So Israel's waiting at the bottom of the mountain. Moses goes up. He's there for 40 days. God is writing with his finger on tablets of stone. Wow. Crazy. Gives him the Ten Commandments. Gives him all that stuff lined out on the tablets. So Moses starts walking down. He's coming down. Got the tablets. Real excited. Bam. Looks down in Israel immediately. Within those 40 days, as Moses went up, they already broke the covenant that they had with God. They broke their covenant with God by worshiping another idol. The first two commandments in the, in, in the Ten Commandments have to deal with idolatry and making other gods. The first thing that Israel did was break the first two commandments. <laughs> and so this is a picture of, of how great our God is and why covenant is so important is because it's hard for us as humans to keep covenants many, many times. That's a great example of Israel, a whole nation of about a million people breaking the covenant. But this is the beauty of the example that we get from God, is that God still honors his side of the covenant. Even though hu humanity jacked it all up, God still honored his covenant and protected Israel and went through. Now, there, was, there were consequences for their actions, and God, God is a just God. He is not softy. He's not soft on his word. His word is true, and it, and it continues forever and ever and ever. And so there were consequences to that, but he still honored his side of the covenant and had the next generation come up and go into the promised land. And so we look at, at, this, at this example where he said, why he said that, husband, that they need to be faithful to their wives is because an elder has to be faithful to their wife to also represent what Christ is doing for the church. So this is, this is really important for us. This is choosing the covenant over any desire that we could have. In our society, love is a feeling, it's not a choice. When in biblical reality, love is a choice and not a feeling. I can feel aggravated with Danielle, but we're still married and I still choose to love her. I can feel really happy and we can have a great day, and that doesn't change the fact that we're married and that we are staying in covenant and I choose to love my wife. It was our choice to come together into marriage, and so it is our choice that we're going to remain in covenant together as holy matrimony 
through better, through worse, through sickness, through health, through death, through a part. That's, that's valuable to, to the two of us because we realize the covenant of, of the process that we're going through. And so this is a beautiful picture of Christ's sacrifice to give his life when he knew it wasn't going to feel good. He was bleeding from his forehead through the stress that he was experiencing before he was arrested. Because he knew it was not going to feel good to go to the cross. He even said, God, if, if, if possible, let this cup pass from me. If possible. He knew what he was going to have to experience. His feelings were not on the up and up. It was a hard decision to continue to say, yes, this is why I came. This is what I'm doing. He could have been like, nope, I'm going to continue to do miracles. I'm going to continue to do signs and wonders. I'm going to go walk on water some more. I'm going to go hang out with Moses and Elijah here at the top of this mountain, transfiguration. I'm going to do all these amazing, cool things that all these people are just wild about. I'll go and start delivering more legions of demons. But what he said is he knew that he had to go to the cross so that it wasn't just a small region that experienced his power, but it was all of humanity, it was all of creation, and that they could all come to a knowledge intimately with God, and that he could send the Holy Spirit to come and dwell with all, so it wasn't just him waiting for masses of people to come and hang out and then have to go back to the disciples there. He knew what was, what was, the, what was the process, and so his covenant was that he was going to come and die so that people can experience that. This is the faithfulness that we are shown and displayed for the process of marriage. Choosing the covenant over desire. And then the third word is, is, is carryover. So, uh, so he says, as an, uh, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man who chooses or whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So this is a carryover process. This is a carryover. What happens? If we use the first two aspects of our life, we have conviction in our life and we're open and honest with people. It's not that we are perfect, it's that we're able to share with one another when we're struggling knowing that nobody is perfect and that we all need to have the process of healing and deliverance in our life for what God has called us into so that we can live more blameless, above reproach. Above reproach meaning that we are not going to hide our sin. We're not going to try to deal with things just on our own. We're going to actually be honest with others so that we can receive the healing corporately and individually as we need to so we can walk further with Christ in our calling to live out a life of, of, uh, of glory to God. And so this carryover that happens once you have conviction and when you live in covenant life with your spouse, when you live in covenant life with the church, when you live in covenant life with one another, then guess what? Children are very perceptive. Very perceptive. They pick up on things all the time. I'm learning that more and more with my two-year-old. We'll say words and she'll just repeat the last one. Anybody remember that with your kids? So they'll just like, you could be talking a blue streak and then finally you'll end on the last word and bam, they say that last word and they'll say it again and they'll say it again. And then they'll be in, I mean, she'll watch a movie, and then she'll say the last word of, like, many sentences that they're doing. I'm like, man, she's catching on to lots of things. I'll laugh a certain way, and she's now laughing uh, similarly in different ways. Whenever I laugh like that, it's like she's mocking me almost. But she's, <laughs> she's mirroring a lot of what happens. So in our life, whenever we go through and live covenantially, when we live with conviction, if we're in our household and we're openly expressing to people who are around, this is what I'm struggling with, and this is what I need some help with then guess what? Your kids will also start to live that way because they'll be comfortable in a place that has an openness for struggle. They're open for what's struggling instead of feeling like they have to have everything put together because if not, I'm going to be disciplined really hard and this is going to be the worst. But they're able to sit there and you're able to sit there and, and not, have, not have anger in your, in your heart or, or frustration to the point to where they feel complete shame over their lives. But you can actually talk to them and talk them through things. Ask them questions as to why they came up with that, that decision. Why did they make that decision finally? Instead of just disciplining the decision, talk about the thought process that happened to get them to that decision. Man, if we could start living in that, then guess what? We're going to have a lot of people who are living a lot more healthy. And then your children will also know that you're not perfect. You're not living perfectly. There's a friend of mine, he posted on Facebook a couple months ago. He was driving in the car and he got real frustrated with his daughter. And he kind of snapped real quick. And uh, dropped her off at school, and as he was driving away, he felt the conviction in his heart. Holy Spirit was like, that wasn't right. You shouldn't have responded that way. That was, that was pretty mean. You're kind of a jerk. And so you know what he did? He turned around, went back to the school, called her out of class, and sat there in the, in the conference room and apologized to his daughter and said, baby, I'm sorry. That, I, I really reacted poorly to you earlier. That was not how I should have spoken to you. 
um, and I'm, I'm asking your forgiveness for the way that I treated you because that, that wasn't Christ-like and I know that that wasn't a, something that brought you joy in your heart. I know that that hurt your feelings and stuff. And you know what she did? She, she kind of cried a little bit and then she gave him a huge hug and said thank you. And then she apologized for the way that she acted beforehand that caused him to snap. But he was creating an atmosphere of openness and letting her know that, that I don't make the right decision every single time. But I can be open and honest whenever I don't make the right decision and apologize. You will gain much more respect from people when you're able to apologize and when you're able to be open about your struggle than you will to just be their Lord. Amen? There's only one who is perfect. That is God. And so we're going to have that carryover. We have to have the conviction. We have to live in covenant. And we have to have the carryover whenever that happens. And then I'm, I'm, I'm going to get through the rest of this, I promise. Here we go. Verse 7. We're going to start there again. So verse 7. <clears throat> Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And this is, this is very important for us to look at. He must be blameless and not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness or violent or pursuing dishonest gain. It sounds almost opposite of what he was talking about from the fruit of the Spirit, right? Because again, this is Paul writing to Titus. So Paul writes the fruit of the Spirit. He tells us what those are, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's fruit of the life who is living with the Holy Spirit. If you're quick-tempered, that means you don't have very much patience. If you're dishonest, that means that you're not trustworthy. You're not living with truth. If you, if you are acting out in drunkenness, then guess what? That means that you also don't have self-control. You may also not have peace in the midst of that, because lots of times when people are, are, are heavy in specific addictions, it could be, it could be with lust, it could be with, with, with alcohol, it could be with drugs, it could be with uh, TV. Any of these things, we tend to run to what makes us feel good when we don't feel good. If you're not feeling good, you're going to look for something to make you feel good, right? That's, that's a lot of our society. If you don't feel good, do whatever you need to. Make yourself feel good. But again, that's living in a state that is not Christ-like. We have to deal with some things internally. If we, are, if we are living in a place of chaos internally, we need to find out why that chaos exists. What's causing me to react in, in this way, to find, to find any kind of love or acceptance or any kind of numbness through these avenues? And so when he's saying someone who's, who's looking to lead in their life and in their, in their church or, or in their families, when you're looking at this, you, you cannot be quick to these things. You have to actually have the patience that the Holy Spirit gives. You have to be open to the, to the Lord to actually move in your life. And that when you have desires for those, you keep your covenant with the Lord because you know that it is not my feelings that I'm going after. It's my faithfulness to Christ. Ooh, we're quiet today. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm not trying, to, not trying to push you down or anything. Okay, he also says, not violent and not pursuing dishonest gain. And then let's go down to verse 10, real, real quick, Mr. Terry. <clears throat> then he starts to rebuke those who, who fail to do good. He says this, for there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. He's talking about, about Jewish people here. So they were the ones who were circumcised. Um, they, that was a mandate that they had all the way from the Old Testament times that they were to be circumcised. So there were many people outside of that that did not practice this type of, of medical procedure, but the Jews did. And so he's even talking about people that him and Titus know. He said, look, there are a lot of rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcised group. They must be silenced because they are disturbing whole households by teachings of things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain, one of Crete's own prophets, so now he's talking about the, the people from Crete, he said, one of their own prophets said that Cretan, uh, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And this saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and they will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. This is, this is important. I'm going to stop right there for a second. <clears throat> so in Crete, when you look at Zeus was also known for his mischievous behavior in many ways. See, um, if, if you know anything about Greek mythology, I'll try not to nerd out for you on, on you guys for just a minute, but... Um, if you know Greek mythology, there were many different gods who they 
turned into humans for a specific purpose to try to impregnate somebody so they can have children. And that part of the process that they would go through is that they would try to lure in whoever they were preying upon by a good-looking figure, and that they would go through that process and bring them in and try to manipulate them for their own gain. And so if you look at someone who is a deity or a god and you're worshiping this god, then you are going to elevate behavior and deception. You're going to elevate the ability to manipulate people to do whatever it is that you want. Again, honoring your desire and pulling in your desire at the expense of other people. There's a guy named Tim Mackey. I've mentioned him multiple times, but he's the, one of the Bible Project guys. He talks about the, the process in, in, in Matthew chapter 5 in the scripture when Jesus talks about lustfulness. And he says that, that, he says that whenever we enact in lust in these different ways, and you can talk about sin in many different areas, but he was talking about lust in this. He said, when you view people through the lens of your own desires, then you are saying that the purpose for their life is for my pleasure. And that is the only purpose for their life in their living. So when someone is looking at something they're not supposed to, when you start to idolize and look at other people on, on social media, and you start to sit and scan over these photos or scan over these lives of these people, then you are saying, as you're looking over these things and as you're um, uh, imagining different scenes of whatever it is that you want to, then you're starting to say that their purpose in life is just to please you and your desires. And I don't know about you, but I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. We were actually made as, as image, imagers of Christ, imagers of God. And so our purpose, our intent purpose is to glorify God as we're here on earth, to give him praise, honor, and glory in everything that we say, everything that we do, and our whole mentality. So as we're sitting there looking at these people, we're, we are saying in our hearts that these people don't matter for their actually intended purpose. They actually matter to, to please me, which makes me in an elevated position to where I'm putting myself as a God. Woo, we are making ourselves into images of a God and not God. We are actually breaking some of the two first two commandments in the in the in the old in the uh, sorry the Ten Commandments, as we make ourselves into an image that is God. As we start to elevate our own desires over the desires of God, then we we, we start reversing that. Now our intentions are unpure. Now we start to walk into something that is dishonest, and we start to walk into something that really dishonors God and everything that we do. So then we walk into sin, and that's why that's sinful. It's not just because you look at bad things and. And that's it. You just, you just sin. It's wha- what is the intention? What is the purpose behind that? What is the, what is the foul that we, com- that, we, uh, that we end up walking into because of this? That's why Jesus says that you, it says in the law that you shouldn't commit adultery. But he said that if a man looks at a woman with intent in his heart, with lust in his heart, then he's missed the mark. He always goes back to the heart of the individual and the, re- the reason and the purpose behind what they did. Too many times we look at the action or the sin, the action as the sin, when in reality, we missed the mark way before that action manifested itself. And that's why we need to be open with one another in our struggle. Because if we're open and honest in the midst of that, people are going to see things that you cannot see because you were too close to your situation. I value when my wife sits down and says, hey, I don't agree with this, or I, did, I didn't like that you did this, or hey, have you thought about why you reacted this way? It doesn't feel good when you have a conversation like that, but guess what? It's very beneficial for me, and I, and I welcome it. Okay, I'm going to keep going because it's already noon. So then he, en- he ends it this way. He says in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their conscience are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions, but in their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Those are heavy, heavy words. I'm going to read that one more time, okay? Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. To the pure, all things are pure. If you are pure, blessed are the, are the pure in heart, they see God. If you are pure in heart, then every action that you do, every thought that you have, every conversation that you have, it will be pure because your heart is pure. It's not going to be hard to live life in that process in, in, in the way of having to war consistently because your intentions, your heart is pure. Your eyes are on God. Blessed are the pure in heart for you will see God. If your heart is pure, that means that your aim is at Christ constantly. 
That word sin is, is an old medieval times word for grabbing an arrow, knocking it, pulling it back, and shooting and missing the mark. That's what sin is. You missed the mark. But if you are pure in heart and you're seeing God, that means that in all you do, you have your arrow knocked. You have that position perfect. And as soon as you loose that arrow, you're going to hit the mark because your intentions are pure. And if in that purity of heart, you end up missing the mark a little bit, you will be very intent on going and picking that thing up, stepping back in the place that you're at, drawing it again, and taking another shot. You're not going to be nervous about that. Because again, it's not about perfection. Purity is not perfection. Purity is the openness and the transparency that we can have as believers to pursue after God. That's why David was a man after God's own heart. That's why Jesus was called son of David, is because David was quick to hit his knees. He was quick to, to repent. He was quick to go back to God in the midst of his stupidity. Because let me tell you, there were some stupid people in the Old Testament. Real dumb. Many of them were, were high-impact leaders. And they were real dumb with their decisions they made. And times have not changed. We still have real dumb leaders who do stupid stuff. But it's the intent of hitting your knees and, and going through the process of sanctification that is the perfection that we're pointing for. It's not that I am perfect, it's that I'm going after the one who is perfect. And so to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure, because in everything that they do, it's to please themselves, it's to honor themselves, it's to elevate themselves, it's to make themselves feel better, it's to make themselves more, more successful at the expense of other people, but those who are pure in heart don't just want themselves to be successful, they want to bring the army with them, and bring those around to also experience and encounter the grace of God and the goodness of Jesus Christ. So in fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. I'll end with this. Isaiah 33, says, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who saves us. serious <laughs> how many guys are are either currently in a, in a position of leadership or you have have a burden on your heart to either start a ministry or lead something how many guys that's that's your heart that's your desire is to do some things like that this passage you need to comb over it multiple times let this something be just like they say and like, like david says in psalms 119 how can a young man keep his way pure he has to hide the word of the Lord in his heart. Hide the law in his heart. Obey his ordinances and decrees and commands. Hide it in your heart. We have to be people that if we're going to be leading the community multiple times and things, if we're going to be connecting with the body in different areas, we cannot just say, I'm going to start something and then run off with it. We have to have the intentionality of pursuing after Christ in the midst of that. Dealing with things that are here in Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem, the place where I'm at. And then move into my family and my friends in Judea and make sure that that is the place that's being dealt with. Now we, can, now we can deal with those struggles and those things that are happening. And then as you go into Samaria, they don't have anything they can accuse you of because you are living upright. You're living in a life to where everybody who's around you, no one's going to be, be surprised by what's going on in your life. No one's going to be surprised there. There's actually growth. And those people who are accuser, accusers of you, they'll be able to look at your family and say, I mean, they, I, I can't come against them about anything because everything is, is open. They're all that, and now they're all living a life of openness, and they're, they're all actually changing. Their lives are being transformed. So then now you can impact Samaria in that way, because now it's not just your testimony. It's the testimony of those who's around you. Now it's not about you. It's about the body of Christ. And so then you can take Samaria by force. And then guess what? Once you, once you get rid of the accusers, once you start coming— Now, there will always be someone who will try to come against you, but they will be from much, much, much distant places and not so much right in front of you. That's why Galatians says, uh, or sorry, Ephesians says that the fiery darts of the devil. You don't shoot an arrow at somebody that you're two feet away from. You shoot them from a distance. You try to catch them off guard. Anyways, I'll go back to that. So we deal with Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then now it's easy to take the ends of the earth. Not easy in the sense of the work is going to be easy, but easy in the sense of my conscience is clean, my, my heart is, is full of the openness and the pursuit of Christ, so that anything that the world would want to throw against me, it doesn't matter, because I know that my aim is at Christ. And anything he asks of me to do, I will do. Every one of the disciples in the, in the New Testament, except for John, they were all martyred. 
painful deaths. But the thing that, pers- that, that actually kept pushing the gospel message, that actually pushed it into a trajectory that it is from today, is the fact that they did not waver whenever they were accused of lying. Whenever they were questioned, they always consistently said, yes, it is Christ and Christ crucified and then rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. That message didn't change. A lot of times, if someone's lying, if their body's hurting to a certain point and extent, they're not going to die for a lie. They won't die for a lie. So it's that, that, that truth that they live by that they were able to pursue forward and they were able to move into that. So I want to challenge us this morning. Even if you don't feel like you're going to be ahead of a ministry, th- I know that not everybody is going to be doing, not everybody's called to that, but you're called to lead in some capacity. Everybody's called to lead in some capacity, whether if it's leading your home, whether if it's leading in your workplace, whether if it's leading at your school, whether if it's leading in, in a ministry setting, whether you're just, you're starting to just work and serve in certain areas and you want to just be effective in the kingdom. These are all principles that you can apply to your life. These are all principles that we should apply. Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples. We need to be disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. Nobody is exempt from the call and the burden of making a disciple. We all should be doing that. And that will be easier to do as we live in an open life, transparent, and allow the Holy Spirit to work in the midst of our struggle and not despite of our our struggle. Amen? Okay, let's stand up this morning. I know that was a little heavy. I hope you guys are doing okay. Um, <clears throat> but I, I really felt that this, this was going to be a good book to kind of uh, pour over for the next couple weeks as we, uh, as we pursue uh, what God has for us in this season. Amen? Amen. Everybody, let's, uh, let's just go to the Lord with a quick word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's words and his letter to these, these great men. Thank you that Titus was, was dropped into Crete and that he was uh, charged with these things to do. Father, I ask you that as we go into our workplaces, as we start to evaluate our lives, as we start listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, that we would be open to to be able to be used by you and we'll be open for freedom. That, Lord, we will be more than just pew potatoes. That, Lord, we will be able to go into the world and to minister to those. And we don't have to feel like we have to to be elevated in a certain position, but that we're just living our lives that represents Christ and reflects Christ. So that as we do that, people will be impacted. Lord, let us not elevate ourselves to a position like a God, like these uh, people from Crete were doing, but let us know that you are the one that sits on the throne. You are the one that makes the law. You are the one that will bring me out of darkness and into light. You are the one that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you are the one that's with me. So, Father, we give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. We recognize your power, and we want to be people who are used in your army, Father. We're not wrestling against people. We're not pushing people away. Well, we're thwarting the plan of the enemy and we're pursuing in your plan the kingdom connection, the kingdom plan that you have for us. So we give you praise for that. And we, and we thank you for your patience yeah. in the midst of it. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. If you would like prayer or anything, we're going to be up here at the front. Um, otherwise, you can be free to go have lunch with somebody. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday afternoon as you prepare for Monday. You guys have a great week. See y'all.